Now, if you would, open to Acts, Acts chapter 26. If you're new to Manoa Community Church, we've been going verse by verse through the book of Acts in a preaching series called Life on Mission, because the book of Acts is all about the mission of Jesus Christ spreading all through the world, through the apostles and the early church, but continues through us today. And so we're invited into this mission. And Eddie did a great job reading Romans chapter 10, where the apostle Paul pens those words saying how we may be saved. Well, I had him read that before Acts 26, because we're going to read the entire chapter together. This is Paul giving his final defense before King Agrippa II. And at the very end, it's not so much of a defense of why he was in Jerusalem or at the temple. It's a defense for his entire life. It's the third time we see the testimony of the Apostle Paul. And Paul is not really trying to get himself out of going to Rome, which if you've been here for a while, he's appealed to Caesar to give a defense for his life before Caesar. He wants to get to Rome. This is his shot to share the gospel. This is his shot to share his testimony before the highest king in Israel. And at the very end, we're going to see him transition from this, and, and King Agrippa shouts back, or, or uh, would you persuade me to be a Christian so quickly, Paul? Because he knows what's going on. All of a sudden, this is not about a defense of the, the faith or a defense of Paul. This is him trying to get Agrippa to believe in Jesus. The whole thing is about him, how to become a Christian. And Paul ends it by saying, whether short or long, I would that all would become as I am. That all would become a Christian except for these chains. He says, I want you to all believe this message. So we're going to unpack the whole chapter, read it in its entirety. But look at Paul's aim. Because this is not really about a trial of defense of breaking the law. This is a defense of the gospel itself. And Paul is still speaking and his words still have power. He would that you would be as he is, that you would become a Christian just as he desires King Agrippa to become a Christian as well. Because this is a longer section of scripture, I love this practice where we would stand for the reading of God's word. So let's stand together. Acts 26 will be both on the screens or in your Bibles if you have them. I'll read it in its entirety and then pray for us, beginning in verse 1. So Agrippa, that's King Agrippa, said to Paul, the Apostle Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it's before you, King Agrippa, I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they're willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now, I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposition 
opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midnight, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And we had all fallen to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me, and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles, that's the non-Jews, the nations, to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes, so that they may turn from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan to God, and that they may receive forgiveness of sins in a place among those who are sanctified, set apart by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. As he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said, that's the governor, with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words, for the king knows about these things. And to him, I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day, might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king rose and the governor and Bernice, that's his sister, and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. How to become a Christian. Let's pray. Well, God, I pray that Paul's words, that all would be as he is except for these chains, that each one in this room would be persuaded to be a Christian. 
whether in short or long order, God, that our hearts and our minds would be changed, that we would believe this message that Paul so boldly preaches, and that your word has protected and preserved throughout all of time. For none of these things have been done in a corner. These things have been done in human history throughout time with many witnesses to bear witness to them and are preserved in your word as well as foretold by the prophets and Moses himself. And so, God, we pray that faith would arise. For those who believe in Jesus, that our faith would be strengthened. And for those who do not, that we would turn to Jesus even today and become a Christian. I pray in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Would you persuade me to become a Christian? I love this. By the way, the word Christian is not a popular word in your New Testament. It was first used in the book of Acts uh, from Paul's founding church in Antioch. They started calling people Christians. Agrippa knows about Jesus. Agrippa knows about Christianity. Agrippa wanted to hear, if you are here last week himself, he wanted to hear this message from himself. He set aside this next day to hear this message. Agrippa is leaning in to hear the message about how to become a Christian. Now at the end, after the governor kind of shouts out, you're crazy, I'm sure Agrippa's trying to save face in that moment as well. But Agrippa and Bernice are interested and Paul is going after them. But not only after them, because Paul is interested in all who are listening in. He's speaking to the king, but really that just gives him a captive audience of all of these high officials who have come in with all the pomp you remember last week, of all the prominence, all of these leaders are here. And would you persuade me to be a Christian? This is what the Apostle Paul does not quit back. Oh, no, no, no. I wasn't trying to persuade you to believe in Jesus. I was just trying to defend myself doesn't say that, right? Like you talk to somebody and you're trying to win them to Christ. Are you trying to convert me? Oh, I'd never do such a thing. No, he doubles down. He's like, absolutely. I want you all to believe in Jesus. Of course, I'm trying to persuade you to be a Christian. Short or long, I don't care how long it takes. I want you to believe in Jesus. I want you to be as I am except for these chains. And if that's Paul's heart, I think that's the way I need to preach this text. Because he is showing his hand and he's saying, that's my goal for me sharing before King Agrippa today. So if you've come here today and you're already a Christian, praise the Lord. I pray that your faith is strengthened. But if you're not a Christian, Paul's still trying to persuade. His words are still speaking. God is still on the move through the Apostle Paul's testimony. And this is the third time The third time in the book of Acts that we see Paul's testimony. We saw that where it actually happened on the road to Damascus. Paul shared it before a Jewish crowd. And this is the third and final time that it's here. When Luke, inspired by the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit himself repeats himself three times, I think we should listen and lean in. It's not a time to say, I heard this before. When God says holy, holy, holy three times, he wants us to know just how holy he is. When we hear this story three times, we should say this is not redundant. This is important. So lean in this morning as we look at the Apostle Paul's story and ultimately his goal of how to become a Christian. There's three things that Paul embeds in his story that implicitly he is trying to get all of us to do. The three things are to become a Christian is open your eyes to Jesus' light. Secondly, we'll hope in Jesus' risen life. I will give these to you again. And thirdly, repent and turn to God. 
So let's look at them in this order. First, to become a Christian, you need to open your eyes to Jesus' light. Open your eyes to Jesus' light. This is verses 12 to 18. I won't reread them because we just read the whole thing. But here's what Paul is saying. He was on his way. He gives his backstory. You've probably heard it before, but if you didn't know, before the Apostle Paul was the apostle, the sent one, the missionary to the world, to the nations, he was a persecutor of the church. He wants to remind King Agrippa, he wants to remind all of those listening that I was not once I was not always a cheerleader for Jesus, all right? Yes, I'm in trouble for Jesus, but that's not how this all began. I didn't grow up in the church. I didn't grow up believing these things. In fact, I was not even neutral towards Jesus. I opposed his name vehemently. I was very, very Jewish. I'm still very Jewish. He still identifies. He says, my hope is in the same hope they have, the 12 tribes, our nation, my people. This is not a repudiation of my Judaism, this is a fulfillment of it, but I didn't realize it at the time. I was so strict in obeying my religion and believing in it, and I thought that my eyes were open. I thought that I could see clearly, but then on the road to Damascus, as I'm literally sent to extradite Christians, bring them back to Jerusalem so they can stand trial before these church courts, these ecclesiastical courts where they'll get a fair trial, right? The least fair trial in the world. Bring them back into the church and trump them up on heresy you know, charges, right? So he's going to rip them back and bring them to Jerusalem on his way. Literally, that is what he is doing. Jesus shows up on the road to Damascus, but he doesn't know it's Jesus, Because he's blinded by the glory of Christ. So much so, he says that Jesus was brighter than the sun. Do you see that? Look again. Brighter than the sun. He knows how bright the sun is. You ever look at the sun before, right? You shouldn't look at the sun. Don't don't look at the sun. Brighter than that. He is looking up in the sky brighter than the sun. And it is at what time? Midday. It's at noon. What's the brightest time of day? Noon, that's when your shadow's right directly overhead, right? When your shadow's long, sun's further away. Midday, straight up, brightest time of day, Jesus was brighter, but he didn't know it was Jesus. He said, who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Oops. Could you imagine... And he doesn't draw attention in this moment in the testimony, but we learn from the other times he's blinded. He's blinded, and so he goes to Ananias to get his sight back. He prays for him. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. And there's such a parable in, yes, this historically happened, but also in this imagery because he thought that he saw clearly, and it wasn't until he was blinded that he had his eyes open, until he was in darkness when he thought that he was walking a road, the path of righteousness, he was walking a path of persecution and crookedness. He thought he could see the light, and he was walking in darkness, and until Jesus blinded him, that was the moment that he could finally see, and then when his eyes were opened the second time, he finally saw all the glory of Jesus correctly so that if you look at verse 18, now he's been commissioned by Jesus to do what? Look, verse 18, to open their eyes 
so they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God. God turned me from darkness to light. He blinded me, and now I am sending you. Your eyes have been opened, Paul. You are now sent to open their eyes. Which eyes? The nation's eyes, all people's eyes, not only Jew, but Gentiles. Everybody, King Agrippa, your eyes, everybody who's listening in, everybody in this room, I was blinded. My eyes were opened so that your eyes might be opened that your eyes might see the glory of Christ. Because you might not have a Damascus Road experience where Jesus blinds you, but you vicariously can experience through Paul where he says, look at the glory of Jesus and behold him. Do not make my same mistake. I didn't see the light of Christ, but Christ revealed it to me nonetheless. How do you become a Christian? The first thing you need to do is open your eyes to Jesus' light. We were created for light. We love the light. We love the sun. You know, I moved from South Florida. I'm from this area, so if you're saying, do I have cred? I, I was born in Southeast Pennsylvania. I went to Drexel. I'm from this area, but I lived in South Florida for seven and a half years. I get this question all the time. Do you miss it? Do you miss Florida? Because up here, especially in the winter, like Florida's the promised land, right? It's like milk and honey. It's just flowing. Like one day when I'm old and gray, I can find my way to Florida. I love this area. I came back because I wanted to be here. I wanted to be your pastor. The only reason I moved back was to join Manoa Community Church. You guys relocated us a thousand miles back. You, you extradited us out of South Florida. But I will tell you this. I love this area. I do miss the sun. Especially in the winter when it's really dark and cold. My parents bought a condo in South Florida. It's in Margate. And uh, they're snowbirds. You're probably familiar with that, but if you don't know what a snowbird is, I'm going to plant the idea, and now you're all going to become snowbirds. Don't do this. You get a condo, and you winter down in Florida. You see all the birds, right? They're chasing after the sun. They're flying south. Well, there's a lot of older retired folks that go down in the south. We call them snowbirds. They fill out the condos, and then they exodus when spring right around Easter comes. So they're snowbirds now. We love the sun. We were created for light. You know, when God created humanity on the sixth day, there was already light and there was already sunlight. But you know, one of the more perplexing things about Genesis is on day one, the very first thing that God created, remember this, on the first day, God said, let there be lights. The most important thing, we're going to bring order out of chaos is we're going to speak light into darkness because God is light in him. is no darkness at all. And the more studious, you know, person reads it and then the scientific mind says, wait a second. But on day four, God creates the sun. So how is there light if there's no sun? And they kind of do the stumping sort of like, so therefore your Bible's let me set this straight. Now, however you read Genesis, there's different responsible ways to read it. But you need to know this regardless of how you read it. You ready? We do not get light from the sun. The sun gets its light from God. We do not get light from the sun. The sun gets its light from God. Light came before the sun. And by the way, Jesus is brighter than the sun. 
brighter than the sun. God is more glorious than the sun, and there are billions of suns in this galaxy. There is only one Jesus Christ, and he is the brightest, most glorious God in all of the universe because through him, through the eternal word, God spoke creation into being, and God spoke light into being. And now Jesus now displays the light of God to the world. He shines the light of God. In him was the light Our word, John chapter 1 says, it was a light that shines in the darkness. If you long for light, if you long for spiritual light, if you long to be enlightened, if you long to have the warmth of God's mercy and grace shine upon your life, look to Jesus. Because Paul thought that he knew God until he had that oops moment. And we look for light in all the wrong places or we find derivative lights like Florida that will never replace Jesus and never enlighten your soul. Jesus is so glorious. You know, he put on flesh so that we don't get to see the glory of Christ much But outside of the sermon, I really encourage you to go back and read about the Mount of Transfiguration because that's where Jesus' glory, as best humanly speaking, the apostles can put it into words, where his clothing becomes like snow and his appearance like the sun, like light itself. That is the true glory of Christ. Now, clothed in flesh, we behold the Godhead in the Gospels. But the true glory of Christ is on the Mount of Transfiguration, and it's Paul on the Damascus Road experience. When the flesh, when that veil is pulled back and we see the glory of Christ, all the light of God that you need for this world into the next is found in Jesus Christ. Do not look for it in any other spiritual outlets, any other religions. Christ makes this claim. He is the light of the world. And if you come to him, he will open your eyes. He'll transfer you from darkness into light. The first way you become a Christian is you open your eyes to Jesus' light. Secondly, you hope in Jesus' risen life. You hope in Jesus' risen life. Verses six to eight, I want to reread with you. Listen to this, it's on the screens as well. Paul says at the outset before he goes into his testimony, verse six, and now I stand here on trial because of my hope. Circle the word hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope, circle the word hope, to obtain as they earnestly worship day and night. And for this hope, circle the word hope, I am accused by, Jew, by the Jews, O king. Then he ties this hope to what? Verse 8. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? to Jesus' risen life, verse 21 through 23. For this reason, the Jews have seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. Why? To this day, I've had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and to great, namely to the king, right? Saying nothing but what the prophets, that's your Old Testament, and Moses said would come to pass. What they say would come to pass? That the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to, there it is again, rise from the dead, he would proclaim both 
light, excuse me, proclaimed light. There's the word light again, both to our people and to the Gentiles. Why is Paul on trial? He says, our people have a hope. Three times he talks about the hope of Israel, the hope of the people of God. What is the hope? Why is it thought incredible? Three times, this is our hope, that God would raise the dead. And then later as he goes right back into the gospel, he says, I'm on trial because Moses and the prophets say this, that the Christ would suffer and die and rise from the dead. Now this is once again where the governor interrupts him and says, you're crazy. Dead people don't come back to life. He says, I'm not crazy. My Bible teaches that this would happen. King Agrippa, you believe the Bible. The prophets say it. Moses says it. And by the way, none of these things happened in a corner. This is not a private like, hey, Jesus died, rose from the dead, and the apostles got his body and said, hey, um, you know, we, we noticed that Jesus rose from the dead. Can we see his body? Nope, nobody gets to see it. Would you just believe us? Just believe us. We claim that Jesus rose from the dead. That's not how this went down, is it? You remember the apostles were fleeing, running for their lives. They were not standing boldly at the end. They looked like a bunch of cowards, right? It's only the women that go to the grave. Mary Magdalene is out front. An angel moves the stone. There is an empty stone. We're getting to Easter, right? Here's the Easter story. The angels are there. They're like lightning. And they, they speak to them and say, he's not here. He's risen from the dead. And then over a series of weeks, Jesus shows up over and over and over again bodily. He eats fish. Thomas says, I don't believe it. I'll never believe it unless I touch his side. Put, it, put my hands into his finger holes where the nails went through. And Jesus shows up to Thomas and says, do not doubt but believe, Thomas. Over over and over. 1 Corinthians 15, he appeared to over 500 witnesses at one time. One time. There was a guy researching the historical reliability of Christianity. He went to a psychologist or psychiatrist. He said, do group hallucinations happen like 500 people at the same time? He said, no, hallucinations by their very nature are individual. If 500 people hallucinated the same thing, that would be a greater miracle than the resurrection itself. That does not happen. All right, Jesus is alive. And by the way, the Apostle Paul himself was not an apostle. The only reason he's standing here defending the reliability of the resurrection that God raises the dead is because the risen Jesus blinded him and said, I am Jesus. He was not looking for Jesus. He was not hoping that he was alive, that maybe eternal life would come through Jesus. None of that. Paul had all of his theology had to be reworked because of the reality of the resurrection. It didn't fit into his grid at first. He had to readjust his systematic theology to fit what really actually happened. He had to go back and reread his Old Testament because this is what Jesus actually did. So it's in your Bibles, yes, but it didn't happen in a corner. King Agrippa knows that. You know that. If you want to write off Jesus, it's just some little historical parenthetical thing that happened on the side that we don't even know if Jesus really existed. You're foolish. He exists, he's alive, he is real. We have more documentation on Jesus than any other historical person. If you believe in Caesar, yeah. Any of the people of antiquity, if you believe what history books say about them, you have far more reason to believe them than about Jesus. We have thousands of ancient manuscripts and copies and dozens of different authors and different eyewitnesses. None of this happened in a corner. 
And there were a lot of people claiming to be the Messiah in the early days back then. None of them continued. You know why? They're dead. They're dead and they stayed dead. The only following that has gotten a global movement is Jesus. This messianic movement lives on. Why? Because Jesus rose from the dead. Where is your hope this morning? What are you hoping in in this world and into the next? Three times Paul says, I'm here because of where my hope is. My hope is in what the hope God promised to our fathers all along, that God raises the dead. And here's why Jesus' resurrection matters, not only for Jesus and his authority, but for you. Because the Bible says that his resurrection is a first fruits. What do I mean by that? When crops come out, there's the first fruits that kind of tell you what's coming next. You see the buds right now on the trees. Those are sort of the first fruits. You see the bulbs pop up. You know what's to come. The people of Israel believed in a bodily resurrection, at least the Pharisees, which is the tradition Paul came out of, but they didn't see it yet. And they believed on it in that future age, that eschatological age in the end of the world. Well, Jesus brought the end of the world into this present evil age, and he became the first fruits to validate and prove it. And just like in Adam, we all die. Jesus becomes that new humanity that when you place your faith in him, his resurrection life comes to you. That when you are born again by believing in Jesus Christ, his seed is planted in you so that on that final day, you will be raised with him, immortal, imperishable, forever and ever, not simply as a spirit in the sky where he's got the body and you get to float next to him. No, you get a body just like him, a resurrection, a new creation where God is making all things new. The curse was cosmic in its scope. All of creation groans all of creation will be renewed. And Jesus is the proof positive of that. Death is destroyed. Death will not have the final word because Jesus is alive. How do you become a Christian? First, you look to Jesus for the light of the world. He's the source of God's light. Secondly, you hope in Jesus' risen life. A great hymn, Because He Lives. God sent his son, it's on the screen. They called him Jesus. He came to love, heal, and forgive. He bled and died to buy my pardon. An empty grave is there to prove my Savior lives. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future. Life is worth the living just because he lives. If you're hopeless this morning, if you're coming here saying, I have no reason to live, because he lives, you do. And it's getting better, much better. Amen. You open your eyes to Jesus' light. Second, hope in Jesus' risen life. Thirdly and finally, repent. Repent and turn to God. Verse 18 again through verse 20. To open their eyes so they may turn, circle the word turn, from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified, set apart by faith in me, faith in Christ Jesus. 
Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea. What did he repent? Also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God. Circle the word repent, underline, and turn to God. Performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. Circle the word repentance. How do you become a Christian? Not only do you look to Jesus as the source of light, not only do you find your hope, you believe that he died and rose from the dead for you, but then you repent and you turn to God. You cannot be a Christian and still walk in darkness. You cannot be a Christian and still be a slave to the power of Satan. These are incompatible. Now, as Christians, we still wrestle against the devil. We still fight sin, but we fight sin. You see the difference? We don't give ourselves over to it and use Jesus as a license to live with the devil. You know, Jesus, or excuse me, Paul says later that Satan himself disguises himself as an angel of light. And so one of the ways that we escape his snares is we repent, we change our thinking, we change our behavior, we flee from the world and what the world describes as bright and light because the world is really good at putting a sheen on really evil things. You look around and all forms of immorality that the Bible condemns, the world celebrates and wants you to celebrate. We will not be bigots. We will not be angry. We will not be mean. But we will never celebrate sin in our family or in our church. Can I get an amen? We won't do it. We celebrate Jesus. We celebrate God. We are set apart. We are being sanctified by faith in Jesus Christ. And we turn from darkness to light. We turn from the power of Satan to God. We turn, we turn, we turn to him to receive forgiveness. We turn from our guilt. We turn from our shame. We turn from it all. We turn to Jesus Christ. And when we do, we receive the forgiveness of our sins through faith in Jesus. He cleanses us so that we would turn to God and perform deeds in keeping with our repentance. I want to be clear, this is not perfect. <laughs> you will be repenting the rest of your Christian life. So repentance is how you begin the Christian life, and it's also how you continue in the Christian life, not because you lose your salvation and get it back again. I'm not saying that. It inaugurates a life of repentance and faith. You didn't used to look to God for these things. You do now. And when you fall short, I heard it one way in college, I love this, kind of spiritual breathing. Repentance is just the exhale as you inhale God's forgiveness. It's just the day-by-day -day way that we operate in our Christian walk. Martin Luther once said, I can't keep birds from flying over my head, namely sin, but I can keep them from putting a nest in my hair. <laughs> right? Are you going to have thoughts? You know, ah, oh, man, these evil darts, the fiery darts of the enemy, he's still going to attack you. But you're not going to bow and show allegiance to him or try to put some sort of color, you know, sheen up the devil's sort of like be his PR agent, you know, Ten Commandments, we got Beelzebub, you know, like put, we follow Jesus. And as you come into the faith, you turn from darkness to light. You turn from the power of Satan to God. Some of you, that's just turning from deception and lies. Some of you, you got to throw away some Ouija boards and some, you know, you got to get rid of whatever these spiritual powers of darkness that are an inroad into your soul. Whatever it looks like for you, for me, 
You remember my story. My idol, my God was my band in high school. And it required me to quit the band. And I, I took the CDs that I was pawning off out of my backpack and I put my Bible in. For me, that was repentance. For me, that was the 180. For me, that was the, one, that was the turning. For the Apostle Paul, he, was, he stopped killing Christians, right? Like, he, he proved his repentance, didn't he? He made good on that. He made good on that. Performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. If Paul was still going around, I believe in Jesus, but I'm still locking you up because it's my J-O-B job and I just got to do it. Like, that's not how Christians operate. Again, your deeds do not save you. I want to be abundantly clear. They flow out of a salvation. They go back and they show what's happened internally. They show the transformed life. So if there is no transformation, it is by faith alone, in Christ alone, that you are saved. But if Christ has saved you, if he's transferred you from darkness to light, and you are still walking in the darkness, I want to go back to that moment where that exchange happened in question. Just a little bit. Maybe we need to go back and look at Jesus one more time. Because maybe there's an angel of light that you thought was Jesus that is disguising himself. You need to take off who you want Jesus to be and worship the real Jesus. We all like to, nobody dislikes Jesus. Every religion wants Jesus. They just don't want the Jesus in the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That Jesus, he rubbed some salt into our wounds. You got to take Jesus as he is because he is Lord of all. And your life to be Christ-like conforms to his, not the other way around. You don't shape Jesus into your own convictions and preferences. You study him, you behold him, and let him transform you from the inside out. He uses the word here, they should, do you see that? That they should, verse 20, also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God. If you haven't repented, you should do it. And there's a world of difference between could and should. I have four kids, and sometimes the house gets messy. They could clean their room. They could clean the basement. Mommy and Daddy don't say, could you clean the basement? We say, you should clean the basement. Today is a cleanup day. You should clean your room now. There's a world of difference between you could repent and you should repent. And God... When he put this into his word, he did not use the word, you could do this. He says, you should do this. Because God commands all men everywhere to repent. And if this was your peer commanding you to repent, that would be pretty arrogant. But if this is your creator commanding you to repent, if mom and dad say, you should clean your room, you should clean your room, kids, all right? Because we have authority in that moment to tell you what to do. You should do this. And this is not a cosmic killjoy. There is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. It will set your hope in the right place. It will give you forgiveness of sins, a place among those who are sanctified by faith in Jesus. Every good thing you want in this life and into the next will happen at this moment of repentance. And if you put it off, you will simply be stuck exactly where you are right now. You will still be in the place of darkness. This, the powers that still control your life will still control your life. So if you like how it's going right now, do nothing. But if you want freedom, if you want deliverance, if you want to turn, then you should repent. You should do it. And when you do 
Heaven will rejoice. God's saints will rejoice. You'll experience liberation. You will experience freedom. One of the greatest stories in our Bibles, Luke 15, lost sheep, lost coin, lost sons. It's the first message I preached here. In it, Jesus says, that's where he says, there's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. And I want to end today's sermon with that story and then give you a chance to repent if you need to. Because there's two sons One's a responsible one, one's irresponsible, the younger one. And he says to his father, Father, give me the share of the inheritance that's coming to me. And so his dad, crazy, he's a wealthy person, he sells off half of his estate, gives it to the younger son, and he leaves his father's house and he goes and squanders it in reckless living. And he blows through all of his dad's wealth, and then there's a famine in the land, he can't find work. So he sells himself into feeding pigs. And it gets so dirty and so dark and so desperate and he's so hungry that he longs to fill his stomach with the pods that he's giving to the pigs. And in that pig's sigh, Jesus says in the story, he comes to his senses. He comes to himself. There's kind of that light bulb moment. Just like Paul on the road to Damascus, there is a divine interruption where he says, wait a second. My father's servants have it way better than me. I know what I got to do. I got to go back to my father and say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm not even worthy to be called your son anymore. But if you would just hire me back as one of your hired hands, I would love to work for you. That is the moment where he repented, where he came to his senses, where he changed his thoughts. He said, my father was right and I was wrong. And my situation, my sin has brought me to this place and I'm going back to the father's house. But the beauty of the story is this. When the son comes back to the father's house, when he repents, the father doesn't stand there with his arms crossed. Took you long enough. I commanded you to repent. Finally, you did it. You should have done it long. He runs to his son. He embraces his son. He takes off his robe and puts it around his son. He puts a ring on his son's finger. He puts new shoes on his feet. He calls the servants together and says, throw a party, kill the fatted calf. We're going to have steak and flame and yawn tonight. We are going to have such a glorious party because this son was dead and now he's alive. He was lost and now he's found. And all of heaven rejoices, and all of heaven celebrates. And Jesus says, that is what God will do for one sinner, one person who comes to their senses and turns to him. But there's one other group I want to speak to from that story. Because they're not like the prodigal. They're more like the Apostle Paul. Religious, spiritual, do-gooders. And in the story, it ends with a foreboding warning because there's the older brother comes back and the party represents heaven, celebration, salvation, and the father is pleading with him to come into the party, to come into salvation, and the son says, no, he does not deserve this. I do. I worked my whole life. I worked my tail off for you. He should not get a party. And that son never enters the party. And if you want to become a Christian, you need to repent You need to repent of your sin, but you also need to repent of your religion. You need to repent of self-righteousness. You need to repent of all the other things that would keep you out of the party because the only people that get to go to the party are those who experience the grace, forgiveness, and mercy of God. You never earn it. You never deserve it. You only come like Paul and say, I was wrong. Forgive me.
like the prodigal son and say, I screwed up, forgive me. You will receive a place among those who are sanctified, set apart, made holy by God, and you will receive the forgiveness of your sins through faith in Jesus Christ. It's hard to kick against the goads. That's what he says. Jesus says that to him, right? Goads are these ox goads that when you go against the will of God, when you go against the will of the driver, it stabs you in the side. Don't resist God. It's hard to kick against the goads. God has you here. You should repent. Amen. Let's stand. If you'd like to become a Christian today or you are a Christian but want to re-confess your faith to be sure, you say, I think I repented, but I need a moment of re-confessing that to God just to be, be sure. I want to give you a moment to do that before we end with a final song of worship. So if you could just bow your heads and close your eyes. If you'd like to pray to God in a prayer of repentance, it's through repentance and faith by turning to Jesus and trusting in him that all of your sins are forgiven and that you're delivered from the power of Satan into the power of God that he comes into our lives. If you'd like to do that, just slip up your hand so I can see you. I'd like to pray for you. I see you. Who else? I see you. Anybody else? I see you. Anybody else? I see you. Great. Linger here a moment longer. Anybody else? I see you. Thank you for your courage to raise your hand. In this moment, talk to Jesus, not to me, and turn my words into yours. Jesus, I believe that you are the light of the world. Forgive me for walking in the darkness and thinking it was light. Today, I turn to you for light in my life. Today, I turn to you for forgiveness. I say, forgive me for my good deeds and my bad, for anything that I trusted in apart from you. Thank you that you died and rose from the dead. Today, I place my hope in your risen life, that you defeated sin and death for me. And today, I say, Satan, your power is out and the power of God I invite into my life. And so, Spirit of God, please come and fill me right now. Fill me and release me from this power, God. Give me a desire to prove this faith through a changed life. Not perfectly, but starting today into eternity, Lord. I pray that I would follow Jesus and look to him for all hope, for all light, for my salvation. And for the church, God, we thank you for this powerful story that Paul shared three times that our own faith might be strengthened and our confidence in the resurrection of Jesus. And I pray for us as a church that we would be a people who walk in the light as you are in the light. That we would be a people that take that inaugural experience of repentance and faith and live it out the rest of our lives until you come back, Lord Jesus. That we would be a testimony to this world of a transformed people. That when people look at the church, they would say, those are sinners saved by grace that are being made new. I want to be a part of that. Forgive us for self-righteousness when we're like that older brother. And forgive us for the pigsty that we get our lives into. Thank you for your house, Father. And that we have a place in there where you embrace us and love us. And wrap your arms around us. And clothe us in your righteousness, Jesus. Fill us afresh with your grace and spirit that we would walk with you and walk in the light now and forevermore. We pray it in Jesus' name.
Amen.